Hey everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Cam Convos podcast. I'm your host, Henry. And I'm Medina. And today we're very excited to be joined by Dr. Stuart Cantrell, who's the chief editor over at Nature Chemistry. So Stuart, if you'd like to introduce yourself, please. Hi, I've been the chief editor of Nature Chemistry for about ooh, 12 years now, since 2008, well, 13 years. And I'm a chemist, I have a PhD in chemistry. And what else would you like to know? So I would say that we were really challenged to come up with creative questions since you were invited to so many different podcasts and you're famous. That's amazing. And (laughs) yeah, so one of the first questions that we had since kind of coming off of the title, Nature of Publishing. So how do you think the nature of publishing changed over time? Wow, that's a deep question to start with. Obviously, one of the biggest changes more recently is the push towards open access. Although I guess open access has been a thing for quite some time now, but it's really sort of taken off or starting to take off in chemistry now. It's maybe not been huge in chemistry beforehand, but I think there's more of a push for that now. And obviously the way we can publish, I mean, we've had the internet for years, but we can do more and more with it now and the bandwidth that people have. Do we still need to present a paper in the same way that we've presented a scientific paper for the last 150 years? I mean, the short answer is I'm not quite sure how things are going to change. I think there is a trend to more openness and transparency. So not only in terms of open access publishing models, but also in terms of people signing their referee reports in terms of publishing referee reports. So there's more of a, almost like a behind the scenes of finding out what goes on with each paper. So that's one thing. The thing is, if I knew what publishing would like in five years time, I think I'd probably run off and found my own publishing company and actually figure out what that is and do that. There's always a lot of inertia because the way scientists work and the way scientists publish papers, it's very easy just to do it the way it's always been done before. And there are a small number of people out there who will innovate and do things differently. But generally, the vast majority of publishers and the vast majority of researchers, I think, are happy doing it the way they do it. Now, whether that's the best way of disseminating knowledge, that's up for debate. But the one thing is for sure is publishing has been evolving. It has been changing, maybe in small ways. It's not going to suddenly change overnight. But It's interesting to be part of it, and it will be interesting to see what it's like in five years or 10 years' time. But the short answer is, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. For sure. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. In terms of the innovations within publishing, what would you say your opinion is on, what is it, the chem archive kind of thing and putting these preprints out rather than submitting straight to a journal? Do you see that as an advantageous thing to do? I do. I think preprints are a good thing. I think it gives researchers control over when they unleash their latest and greatest results on the community. It gets things out there more quickly. Obviously, peer review takes time. I still think peer review still has a place. But if people are aware of what preprints are, they're not peer reviewed. But having said that, peer review doesn't mean a piece of science is right. It means basically three or four random internet strangers have said, yeah, this looks all right. So peer review is no panacea. It's no guarantee that something is absolutely correct. But it gives you some kind of filter. And also, depending what sort of journal you ultimately publish in, obviously, there are sound science journals that just filter for things being correct. And then obviously, there are journals like Nature Chemistry, like JAX, like Angavanta, that don't just filter for things being correct, hopefully. 
but they also filter for what we think the community will find most interesting. So we are making a judgment on significance. So you could argue that why doesn't everyone just put all of their papers on preprint servers and just do away with journals? I mean, then it's all free, it's all open, it's all available. But people like their work to be differentiated. People crow about having papers in science or nature. They like to say, I got five Jack's papers last year. And the way the whole academic system is set up is the way people are evaluated, sadly, is more based on where they publish and how much they publish rather than what they publish. Preprints are a really great innovation. I'm glad that chemists are embracing them through Chem Archive. It took a little while. Obviously, physicists have had preprints for a long time now. And then bioarchive came along. And of course, there are many other discipline-specific archives. But now overall, I see very few, if any, downsides of preprints. Talking about, obviously, the pandemic has been a thing, and you talked briefly about it previously. How do you say you've handled the work-life balance and especially the homeschooling aspect? Have you found it to be difficult alongside work? Or I will be the first person to confess that my wife is, well, A, amazing, but also a superhero. Vicky has taken care of probably about 99.5% of the homeschooling. And I am very grateful for that. I've done a very little bit. I'll generally do things more along the maths side of things because the English just confounds me the way English is taught these days. It's a foreign language to me now, the way they teach English. Oh, there are whole worksheets that I have no idea how to complete that Thea does. So, homeschooling, I've been very blessed that Vicky has taken the lead on that totally. In terms of work-life balance, when I first started work as an editor, I was very bad. And I would always be checking my email and I would constantly be working. I'd work in the evenings, I'd work at weekends. And then it just got to the point where I'm like, this is silly. I'm not actually an academic and this is not an academic lifestyle. And I know a lot of academics do find it difficult to switch off. And so I became very disciplined and I gave up my work phone. I gave my work phone back. I handed it in. I turned off my work email account on my personal phone. And once I was finished working on a Friday afternoon, sometimes a Friday evening, that's it. My work computer would be off and I will not check work email over a weekend. It's very rare that anyone on the team ever contacts me over the weekend. It's not as though I expect them to work on the weekends either. And then things get turned back on on Monday mornings. It was actually quite easy pre-pandemic because we live in Cambridge and the nature offices are in London. So it involves a train ride and a short car journey to the train station. So you have that physical separation as well. So I've got my home life at home and then I've got my work life 60 odd miles away in London. But of course, that changed last March. In fact, it's almost exactly a year now. My last working day in the office was March the 6th last year. And so we're now working from home or are we living at work? What are we doing? There's kind of blurred boundaries there. Yeah. And so it has been a little bit more difficult, not practically, I would say, but mentally. Yeah. Because you're in the same four walls And part of the time you're trying to live your life and enjoy time with your family, but literally in the same space, you are then working. So it was actually quite difficult to begin with. So what I've started doing this year is very definitively making sure I get out every day, go for a walk, 
so as I've done this morning, during the week, I go for shorter walks than I did today, a lunchtime walk or an afternoon walk, sometimes all of the family, we go together, just getting out of these four walls and just getting some fresh air. Because last year, it was just so easy to fall into a trap of you get up, you have breakfast, you then sit in front of the computer, you maybe break for a little bit of lunch, then you go back to the computer and your next thing you know, it's seven o'clock in the evening. Even though still, I was very, very good about setting limits in terms of I'm going to stop working at this time today and I'm not going to start working before this time tomorrow and I'm not going to do anything at weekends. So it it has been, it's been challenging, but I think you need to force yourself to step away from the work aspect of your home life and just go and do something different for a little while each day. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think for a lot of people, that physical and mental separation just isn't there at the moment. And like you say, having that routine is good to a point but you know when it's constantly that you're just inside all day and you're not you know for me when I'd be going to the lab that would be that routine but it's separate you have that walk even if it's 10 minutes to and from the lab you get out you get the fresh air whereas now if you're so inclined you can technically just work at your desk all day and like you say the lines the time just blurs and yeah, you can become very isolated I think is basically what it comes down to it's very insular you know working from home and things So if you have the chance to go to the lab or, you know, even just go out and meet a friend for a walk, it can be quite refreshing, I think. Yeah, I guess it also inspires a lot of beautiful things. And it also makes you appreciate a lot of small things that you never notice in a normal life. For example, I would never think about walking as, you know, fun activity. I would just, because you had so many other things that you could do. But now, because that's one of the ways how we can you know, get out of this bubble and enjoy life, it makes you appreciate it more. And it inspires a lot of other things. For example, social isolation, social, I don't think it would ever be inspired. I mean, it maybe it would, but in a normal time, I feel like people are so busy with other things that you don't allow this creative ideas to come into your head. So how did it get inspired to, you know, come up with this idea of hosting this twice per week events with chemists? So like most things, it just kind of happened. I'll talk you through the steps, how it kind of happened. It was never this grand plan. So again, I think it was very soon after the first lockdown in the UK was announced. And maybe it was something like the 20th of March. It was literally a day or two after the first lockdown was announced. And I'd just been out for a run back when I was actually still running a little bit, which I need to get back into. I just tweeted out sort of sheer exhilaration of like, oh, I've just been out for a run. It was so nice to get out of the house. I'm not breaking any rules. It was my one permitted exercise per day. And I just tweeted that. And LC, Dr. LC Square on Twitter, he replied to say, yeah, I've been on my Peloton an awful lot. But it would be really good to hang out with a bunch of people. Does anybody fancy a FaceTime beer? That was the actual phrase he used, FaceTime beer. And it wasn't too long after. So obviously the ACS meeting had been cancelled. I think it was meant to be Philadelphia, I think. And it had been cancelled. But obviously they shifted some of it online and they shifted the tweet up. So there's normally a tweet up at ACS meetings where all the Twitter addicts get together and have a drink. And they shifted this online for the ACS Philly meeting. And I attended that. And it was a bunch of people on Zoom. And they kept splitting people up into breakout rooms. And it worked really well. It was really good. 
so after I tweeted about running and Elsie had replied, I replied and said, yeah, actually, we could probably get a group of people together, hang out and have a drink online because of my experience with the ACS tweet up. I know it can be done. And so the platform we use is GoToMeeting because that's the one we use through work. We don't have a Zoom account that we could have sort of unlimited time on. I think we each reached out to a couple of people and it ended up just being six of us, I believe. And we didn't even plan screenshots or anything, but it just turned out that during the social, well, it wasn't even a social then, it was just six people hanging out, having a beer. LC was using his iPad and he took a photo on his phone of his iPad with the six of us on there. And I think I tweeted about, hey, this is great. We just hung out and we had a beer. And I think Elsie replied with a picture of the six of us, but obviously literally like an iPad at a slight angle. (laughs) And then obviously a few people replied going, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Can we come? (laughs) And so I think Elsie and I DM each other a lot of the time and we were like well we should maybe do another one and see how it goes and we did a second one and I think that's when we probably had a proper screenshot and we tweeted about that and more people were like this seems like fun can we join in the two of us never really sort of got together and said right then how are we going to do this what's the plan going to be we just carried on organizing them and it got to the point where I had to try and keep track of signups so we actually now have a google sheet that we share between the two of us where we just keep the slots and we know how many people we can schedule into each slot. And then after it became a regular thing, there were a few people who would sort of say on Twitter, this is great, but the time zone doesn't really work for us. So then every now and then we would host one slightly earlier in the day so that would make it a little bit easier for Asian time zones. And so we've done a handful of those. And it sort of had a life of its own. We've had a few themed ones. We have a few themed ones coming up on food and cooking. And so we have another one tonight. And I think tonight is the 94th social. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, I think I think that's amazing, you know, especially how you've brought together, you know, a community that otherwise, I think, had it not been for the pandemic, you know, Twitter's a big space at the end of the day. You know, bringing a community together like that is something that, is so good to do because like you say, there are people all over the world doing such different things. So being able to speak to them and find out what they do, you know, both in and outside the lab is great. And I think it kind of inspired, I think me and Medina both, well, I came to the most recent one on Tuesday and I think Medina came to a previous one and it's kind of this, what has inspired, you know, us to do the Chem student social that we've started. And it similarly had quite a big uptake in that it's a chance for students, you know, to meet and discuss their lives basically and that's what I noticed on Tuesday especially it's very relaxed and you know you can talk about basically anything I think the topic we had was mostly injuries I think it was quite funny interesting to hear your story about uh, your femur stew you know (laughs) yeah it's you never know what you're going to get and it's always very relaxed I mean it's really been nice to see a whole range of people with different backgrounds at different stages of their careers I will occasionally get a DM from someone saying, oh, I'm an undergrad and I study chemistry. Can people like me come to the social? And I'm like, absolutely. There is no requirement. You don't even have to be a chemist. You might be slightly bored by some of the conversation if you're not a chemist, but you're more than welcome. 
there are people who've come along and they've not said a great deal. They've just sat there and listened. And I've thought, oh, are they enjoying this? Are they finding this comfortable? And then they will reach out to me afterwards and they'll send me another DM and they'll say, actually, I really, really enjoyed that. It was just nice to hang out with a group of people and just listen to people talk. And I'm like, okay, that makes me feel better. And some people do. Some people come and talk a lot and some other people come and they contribute a little bit every now and then. But they're just happy to be sitting there in a group of people chatting. And they've all been very informal there's obviously a lot of topics we've gone back to. We have talked about COVID a lot. We've talked about vaccines a lot. But we've talked about mentoring. We've talked about careers. We've talked about controversial papers. We always talk about the latest Twitter storm, depending what the latest Twitter storm is, because obviously it all nucleates around Twitter. We have had a few people who we know sort of off Twitter who've emailed and said, can we join? I'm like, absolutely, of course you can join. But obviously, it's mostly nucleated around chem Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And it's really very inspiring. So thank you for coming. I mean, that's how I got to know Henry. Like now we're friends and we're doing all these other things together. I literally took it and I was like, okay, I have to find someone from chem Twitter community that I don't know, and I will never have a chance to get to know. And, and Henry was just, you know, Yeah, it just goes to show how amazing, not just the internet, you know, but how amazing Twitter was, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, who would have thought a pandemic would have been a thing 20 years ago, but, you know, Twitter and, yeah, the internet is great for, you know, connecting people, you know, on a global scale. So, I mean, Stu, talking about something besides socials, obviously with these, you often have a drink in hand and we see you're quite a, you know, gin connoisseur, shall we say. Could you maybe talk about your last gin recipe that you made? Was it a particularly good one? I guess I have a certain brand on Twitter now. And the whole way I got into gin, and this comes back to where we started, was through walking, which is going to sound quite weird. But so Thea was very little. And when you have little kids, one of the things you do is you go out on lots of country walks. And the three of us were out walking. I say walking. Me and Vicky were walking and we were carrying Thea, of course. And we walked past this tree bush what have you and it had little purple berries on it so I said to Vicky I said well what are those on that tree and I think Vicky said oh I think they're slows I'm like oh I've heard of slow gin and it turned out they were slows and I think we went back and we started picking them and then we started making our own slow gin and that was where it really got started but I wasn't really a gin connoisseur per se it's just I buy relatively standard Gordon's gin to make the slow gin but then I guess I started tweeting about that that I make slow gin and I make all these other different sort of drinks from foraged fruit so then I I did I guess start exploring different types of gin and then based on that I kind of got a reputation so then whenever I go somewhere or give a talk somewhere everyone's very keen to share with me their favorite gin or the gin they've heard of And so it kind of snowballed from there. The secret, I guess, is this is going to sound weird because people know me from socials. I don't actually drink a huge amount. I have a garage full of like five or six years worth of slow gin and obviously bottles of gin that just accumulated. But I find myself to be more of a collector than a, I mean, I do drink it, but very, very slowly. And it's mostly for when And obviously, this has been a problem for the last 12 months. When we have friends over, and oftentimes when academics are coming through Cambridge, we'll often invite them to 
come and have dinner and come and have a drink. And obviously we haven't been able to do a great deal of that. But because you did ask, and it's not as though I had this handy, it's just at the moment Vicky and Tia are away, so I just haven't put the bottles away. So I just happened to have them on the table from the social last Saturday. Obviously this is being recorded, not being videoed, but there's this Four Pillars Bloody Shiraz gin, which is very good. It's actually a mixture of Shiraz grapes and gin. I mean, it's almost 40% by alcohol. So if you make a Negroni with this, and obviously for a Negroni, you need Campari and you need vermouth. So I actually have the three bottles here because I'm just lazy and I haven't actually put them back in the garage. A normal Negroni, you typically use a very junipery gin, but a normal London dry gin. But if you use this Four Pillars sort of red wine gin, it gives you an extra sort of rich, deep flavour. So I think that's probably on the cards for tonight's social. That's really interesting, Stu. I think I'm just a normal, you know, G&T kind of guy myself. You know, I'll just have a, say, Gordon's gin with some tonic. But I think trying something a bit more adventurous, like a Negroni, might be something I'd like to maybe have a go at. So I might reach out for the recipe, if that's all right. It's really straightforward. And actually, it was a visit to the University of Leeds that actually got me. I didn't even know what a Negroni was until about three or four years ago. I guess I can blame her. It's Professor Michaela Hardy at Leeds. When I visited Leeds, I went out with a group of faculty one evening, and I think Michaela decided to have a Negroni. And I said, oh, what's that? And I think she said, oh, it's great. It's a cocktail where every single ingredient is alcohol. The recipe is literally one-to-one-to-one gin, vermouth, campari. Perfect. Oh, wow. I'll note that down. I'll have a go when I next get those in stock. Currently, my uh, alcohol cupboard's very, very bare. So, you know. (laughs) I wish I could relate. But unfortunately, I cannot because it makes me sleepy, very sleepy if I drink alcohol. So I'll just pass out and just, you know. (laughs) Unfortunately, I just drink a lot of cups of tea. It's probably a British thing, I think. But uh, yeah. (laughs) I've been drinking a a huge amount of coffee as well. This is also the danger of working from home because it's every hour I will get up and go and get a cup of coffee. So now I've deliberately started drinking decaf. I always used to drink decaf in the evenings. But now, with probably the exception of my very first cup every day, I now drink decaf throughout the whole day. Actually, fun fact, the decaf also has caffeine, I think. So I didn't know that. At first, when I when I heard, I was like, oh, like decaffeinated. No caffeine at all. But it actually... Tiny amount. So if you drink a lot, I think it will be just the same as one <laughs> caffeinated. So we do like to ask some random questions too, and we will change them from time to time. For this one, we were wondering, what's your favorite accent? Favorite accent? That's a great question. I'm really going to have to think hard about this. I think... It's probably something like a nice, gentle Scottish accent, actually. Not sort of, I mean, there are varying degrees. And this is the thing about the UK is you can just go 30 miles and the accent is so different from two places that are quite close together. Sort of a a gentle, sort of slightly Scottish accent rather than the sort of Scottish accents where you can't really understand what they're saying. So more of a soft Edinburgh accent rather than a maybe harsher Glaswegian type accent. Yeah, let's go with that. I've come to appreciate those being in Scotland, you know, the past couple of years, it's been very eye-opening in terms of having to listen a bit slower to kind of understand people can be quite interesting. So personally, I'd say South African is quite a nice accent. I'd like to visit South Africa at some point post-pandemic, obviously, to kind of experience that and things like that. Medina, do you have a favourite accent? 
I do. I definitely do. I like the way how Germans speak in English. I really can tell, and I really like it. Because in German, the letter R, the way how they pronounce it, is a bit different. So they pronounce English R in German accent, and that's really adorable. I love it. Cool. Yeah. Just to kind of finish up. So I mean, we have kind of a philosophical question for you. If you could go back ten years. What would be something you tell yourself? So this is one of the questions you flagged up to me beforehand, and so I have been thinking about this because it's actually quite a difficult question. So the obvious answer is, if I could go back to Stu ten years ago, I mean, well, the first thing I would tell him is, in early 2020, buy stocks in Zoom. <laughs> I think that's up there, or maybe invest in Bitcoin. But time travel and financial implications aside, I think the thing is, is I'm doing the same job now. Well, I have the same job title now as I had ten years ago. The way we do things and our processes have changed over time. There's something somebody said to me probably five years ago now, maybe four, and it's perfect is the enemy of good, and. I've often found it hard to let go of things without that bond angle being absolutely right, and without everything being absolutely perfect. And should the rest of the Nature Chemistry team ever hear this, they'll probably still think I'm exactly this way as well. But I am getting better, and it is still a journey. But I think if I actually went back ten years and told me ten years ago to just focus on having things be good rather than things being perfect, I'd probably be further in that journey now. Because when you're editing a news and views, when you're processing a paper, and you just want to make sure it's absolutely perfect, and it'd be so crushing if I found a spelling mistake in the journal or if a structure was slightly wrong. And now it's just like, yeah, okay, we got it wrong, we'll fix it. You can spend so much extra time just trying to get from like ninety-five percent to a hundred percent, but is it really worth it? And so, if someone had told me that a little bit earlier. I think that would have sort of changed my outlook, and yes,、yeah, so we get things wrong now, and I'm like, yeah, fine. It's the same in my private life as well, personal life. And just don't stress on sort of making sure absolutely everything is utterly, utterly perfect. Just make sure things are good and that they work, and it's fine. But you know what? You're probably going to expend so much energy getting that last five percent that you probably the similar amount that you've spent to get to the first ninety-five percent. So I'm learning to let go of making sure things are absolutely perfect and just letting go and making sure they're good enough. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of stress involved with with making things perfect, and I completely agree. It doesn't really worth it at the end. I mean, it's that element of perfectionism, you know, that you've touched on, and I think for a lot of academics, especially at any stage of your career, it's something that everyone experiences to an extent, and being able to. Say when enough is enough, and kind of that old adage of kind of less is more. Quite often, so you know, just do what you can, and that's probably good enough. And I know for myself, you know, if I could go back ten years, I'd say worry less about what people think because that's a thing that I've always grappled with personally. And you know, like you say, usually the work you do is good enough, and just to believe in yourself that bit more, Medina. If you kind of have something, what would you say? Yeah, I would definitely say not to be stressed too much because I was always stressed about not putting in a lot of work, even though I was. So I think that was just to come and be like, "You'll be fine. Don't worry." <laughs> There's always that fear of not being fine. What if this? What if that? So it's nice, and I think it's going to be a really good loop to kind of finish off by coming out of this perfectionism in academia. I think a lot of people. 
do want to end up in JAX or they want to publish in nature chemistry, nature and science. But there's a lot of beautiful work that has been done in a lot of other journals that might not be at the same level. And it's actually making me, I mean, it's not really a sad thing that people have those, you know, perfect standards, but it actually, it shouldn't matter as much as it does. That's my opinion, because it's all about work. It's not about, if it's in JAX, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's amazing. And the reverse is also as true as it is. So I can't say this enough. And I've said this so many times now, the thing that makes a piece of work good is the work. It's not the journal it's published in. And everyone will always look at a journal, they'll see a paper in a particular journal, and they'll be like, how did this get into that journal? And it doesn't matter what journal you are, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about science, nature chemistry, chemcom, it doesn't matter. It's very subjective about whether you think a piece of work is great or not. And a piece of work should never, ever, ever be evaluated based on the journal you've published it in. That is not a good proxy by any measure of how great that piece of work is. Absolutely not. For sure, for sure. It's been great to have you on here today, Stu. Thank you so much. I mean, if people want to reach out to you, how can they kind of reach you? The thing I always tell people, and I tell people this after I go and give talks at various places, you'll get a quicker response from me if you send me a DM on Twitter than if you email me. And of course, I don't check my work email at weekends, whereas I'm obviously on Twitter every moment I'm conscious. So, Of course, aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So is that at Stuart Cantrell? Is that right? It is. It's one of these weird things where formerly, obviously, my name is Stuart, Stuart Cantrell. But I go by Stu. But when I write papers and when I sign up for services, for the most part, I tend to use my full first name and people are free to call me whatever they want i mean i've been called many things over the years but it's just i always feel as though i'm in trouble if someone actually calls me Stuart rather than stew that's really funny <laughs> well thanks everyone for listening if you'd like to reach out to us on twitter you can follow us over at chem Convos pod and we look forward to you listening to our next episode have a great day bye thank you bye